So we are continuing a series that we started uh, a couple weeks ago as we are going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John. And again, we, we started with just kind of the intro and seeing the, again, the Word becoming flesh and the intro of light into the dark world and kind of all of these illustrations that, that John introduces to us to in the, the opening chapters of the Gospel. And, and we, we've seen, again, how Jesus is kind of slow to start. He kind of, he deflects the spotlight and, and kind of keeps, tries to keep himself in more of kind of a, a, a private circle with as he gathers his disciples and, and starts to, to, to again, interact with John the Baptist. And we see this, this happening through these first few chapters. And we saw last week as Dusty uh, took us through chapter three of this interaction with Nicodemus. And uh, again, and just how, how Jesus continues to um, just, just to teach these, these people in private circles. And, and even then we start to saw at the end of the chapter, right, is, as Jesus starts to, 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 as the spotlight shifts, right, and, and where we, we see the last of John the Baptist in the gospel, right, and, and, and again, we ended there with, with his example, right, of, of what Christ needs to be in our lives, and it's symbolic of, of what's happening in the gospel, but also within our own hearts, as, as we ended last week with this very famous verse from John 3.30, as John the Baptist says that he must become greater and greater, and I must become less. And less, and again, we see that right where the attention shifts from John the Baptist onto Jesus, and and yet this is also a growth concept that we need to have in each of our own lives. And then we jump into to chapter four, and, and again, I want to start with these these first four verses in John chapter four. And so, if you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, or you want to use one of them that's provided for you in the seats, you can grab that. Notice the page numbers there, where you can find this passage in those Bibles. Uh, if you're worshiping with us online, grab your Bible, open up with us to, to John chapter 4. And we're going to look at these first four verses. Again, that is kind of, that is the transition, right, um, as we switch gears here in the gospel. So John chapter 4, starting at verse 1, it says, Then Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. And so he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Okay, so we're going to stop there and just kind of look at, at these, these verses that transition us out of the end of chapter 3. Is Jesus is there with John the Baptist and baptizing people, and, and we see that. And, and yet, you know, it tells us that Jesus knew what people had heard about him. He knew what the Pharisees knew and thought about him. Okay, and, and then we transition and say, now Jesus knew all these things, and then now he's going to move on to someplace new. Right? And they say now he's going to go, go on out of Judea back to Galilee, and he was going to go through Samaria on the way. Now, we see this here, this, this kind of concept that we need to understand that's happening here in this chapter. Okay, first is that John makes a few assumptions about what the audience knows. And now, obviously, we are not the original audience of the gospel. Right? And there are some things that John gives here in these stories that that have been lost over time. And some of it is just um, because we were not, you know, present at that time in that area of the world. And, and you know, one of the things that we start off with and the, the assumptions we see that is made here is that, that the people who originally read the gospel knew the landscape, right? They knew the area of the Holy Land. And, and again, when, when John says he, they were in Judea and then they were going go to go to Galilee, like the original audience of the gospel knew what that meant. 
Okay, and that's just one example of some of the assumptions that John makes that we're going to see happen through all of the, both of these stories this morning that happened in John chapter 4. Now, again, these are both pretty familiar stories, especially the first one that we're going to read this morning, The Woman at the Well, right, is a very popular story. It's in a lot of Bible studies and in a lot of curriculums, and, and we see that, and yet there are these assumptions that are made. Now, again, one of these, this first assumption about the landscape Notice in verse 4, it says that, one, that Jesus knew a lot, that, that he knows everything, right? I mean, obviously we know that, right? But also he says, right, that he's going to go back to Galilee, and he must go through Samaria. Now, this is, a, again, a, something that the original audience would have known. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Okay, now, to kind, of, to kind of put that in our context of our valley, is to say, if we are here at the church, and if we say that, hey, we're going to go downtown Boise, Hey, we're going to go from the church to downtown Boise, but we must go through Middleton. Okay, now, it, again, if we're going in that, that route to downtown, if we go down Highway 44, we must go through Middleton to get there. But, but we all know, right, that that's not the fastest, most efficient way to get to downtown. Right, if we were going to go the fastest, easiest route to downtown from here, we would go on the freeway. Now, sometimes it's the fastest. Sometimes it's not, right? Again, we know that as well, right? Again, these are all things that we know because we live here and we, we know the, the landscape. Right? Now, the truth is that Jesus could have gone from Judea to Galilee without going through Samaria. That he didn't have to go through Samaria to get there. It was, it was not a, a question of just that the road, the only way to get there went through Samaria, right? But he did have to go to Samaria. Now, but... Again, and when we know that, multiple routes, like all kinds of sounds that we weren't expecting, right? And, and there, there were different ways that Jesus could have went to Galilee. But why he needed to go to Samaria was because there was a divine appointment in Samaria. Right? There was a lesson that needed to be taught in Samaria. There were people that needed to be reached in Samaria. And so that's why Jesus had to go. Now, again, they knew that, right? That John makes this assumption. Okay, now there are several other assumptions we're going to look at today that are similar to this that John makes in the story. But again, we're going to start off just by reading this familiar, popular story. Okay, so we're going to continue on here in John chapter 4, uh, picking up at verse 5, and we're going to read through the whole uh, story of the woman at the well through verse 42. So picking up at verse 5, it says, Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. Jesus said, or she said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift, that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. 
Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, because then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer uh, matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while the Jews, we know all, all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? And the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone, the disciples asked each other. And then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me uh, from, from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. And at the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. So you know, we see this, this story. right? And within this story, again, there's, there's lots going on here. First off, we see this, this continued um, view of Jesus from both the human perspective, the 100% human part of Jesus, and the 100% divine part of Jesus. Right? We see the human side. I mean, I mean, here he even starts out with the premise of the story, right? is that he's tired, he's physically tired and thirsty. Right? We see that, that, that human side of Jesus. Right? But yet we also see this incredible divine side of Jesus, right? That, yeah, I mean, he literally says, I am the Messiah, right, and claims complete divinity. We see this coming, again, this ongoing struggle between the physical reality of where they are and the spiritual lessons that Jesus is teaching them, right? Whether we first saw this with Nicodemus last week, right, that he couldn't grasp these spiritual concepts that Jesus was trying to to use physical examples for, and then he does the same thing here with the woman at the well, as well as with the disciples. 
right, as he tries to use the, the, the physical concepts of our world to teach them very deep spiritual truths. Some of them got it quicker than others. Right, and here we, we see, um, again, the, the, even the, the, the tension that's in this story. Right? There's a tension between Jesus and, and the Samaritan woman, and as well as with the disciples. You see, sometimes they came back, they were afraid to say these things to Jesus, right? Or confront him about, about what he was doing and, and, and why he shouldn't be talking with this Samaritan woman. And, and again, we, we see these, these hard cultural and gender lines that are drawn. Which brings us to this first assumption, again, that John believes that we already know, and, and that is the fact that, that gender and racial lines were crossed by Jesus in this story. Okay, that, again, he was doing things that he should not be doing. Right, we see this by the reaction of the woman, as well as the reaction of the disciples. But remember, he had to go to Samaria. Right, and, and Get Jesus crossed those lines. I mean, those, those walls are broken down throughout this conversation. Right? That Jesus starts out, and even, even the, the, the interaction between Jesus and this woman was, was, was very tension-filled, and, and, and the, she wasn't sure, right, at first. I mean, you could feel that tension, and yet the more they interacted, you can feel the, just the walls breaking down, and those, those lines become blurred, and, and Jesus just completely goes away from them. Again, look, even look at, at this verse in verse 9, when we see, again, the, the woman's reaction. It says she, she was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Again, she, she calls Jesus out. Right? And she says, again, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman. Right? And not only was it race, but it was gender, and, and, and there's all these things. Now again, Jesus goes beyond those cultural norms, those, those rules of the world, right? as he teaches this incredibly important lesson, not just to her, but to the disciples and to all of us, because this lesson is no more relevant than ever right now. Right? As we see and watch our world, right, that this is a lesson, again, that, that did this woman need? Absolutely. Did the disciples need? Absolutely. But we need this as much today as ever. Right? And Jesus crosses those lines. Again, we, we see, again, these, this assumption that, that, that John teaches through this. Right? But yet, I, I, again, her, this woman's initial response to Jesus was truthfully should have been insulting to Jesus. But how did Jesus react? Can we ask ourselves, right, how do we react to times when we should be insulted by things that people say or that people do? And yet the lesson that Jesus shows us, right, that, that we need to learn as much today as they learned then is, is the fact that everyone is welcome on the journey. Right, that God's love does not is not bound by racial and gender lines. Right, that the gospel message is not for any one race or one gender. Right, that literally it is for everyone. 
again, a lesson that we need today. Right? The gospel is for everyone. God's love is not limited to a race or to a gender or a socioeconomic you know, um, category. Right? It is that God's love goes way beyond any of those walls. And yet we, we see, again, this, this assumption, this lesson, right, that, that they all need it and that we need. And then, and then we move on to the next assumption, right, that is made through this interaction between Jesus and this woman. And, and that is, is the, the assumption that we have read and understand Old Testament symbolism. Again, we see in their interaction, they, they, their conversation goes deep really fast. And again, we weren't talking about how deep the well was. Right, that, that she brings up these, these deep spiritual truths. She asks Jesus the hard questions, right? And, and yet Jesus just engages her and goes deep in that. And we see that, again, that John, that Jesus, even the Samaritan woman, understood the symbolism of the Old Testament, things that sometimes get lost with us. Again, Jesus, instead of being offended, he tells her why he's there talking to her and that God has a gift for her. And that that gift would be eternal life through this living water. And again, this word, this phrase, living water, is, is a, is a, a power-packed phrase. It goes very deep. And this was the concept that Jesus was truly getting her to understand. And again, in verse 10, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, then you would ask me, and I would give you. Living water. Again, living water is a very loaded term. Yet we've seen John talk about light and water several times already in these first few chapters. And, and notice both stories in chapter 3 were about purity. right? We're about being spiritually pure and about how light and darkness and, and water and, and, and how are we purified. And, and again, the, these things that, that, again, that, that, that Nicodemus didn't understand, that John the Baptist was preaching, and we see all of these things culminate into this story with the woman at the well, where Jesus makes the claim and the offer of giving living water. Now, again, this offer is, means way more than we realize once we look at the bigger picture of Scripture and the Old Testament um, you know, themes around purity, and around water, and around light. And today, just because, again, John makes an assumption, and the woman at the well knew the Old Testament scriptures better than we do, I want to take a moment, and we're going to watch this quick video that kind of explains and ties it all together about some of the Old Testament symbolism, and how this light and this water plays out through all of scripture. In fact, it's literally through all of scripture, all the way to Revelation. So we're going to watch this video. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique. 
at least within our solar system. And it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. 
So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Word became flesh. The light entered the darkness. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. These are all concepts that John has been talking about in these first chapters, and now they all culminate into this story of living water. And as we see again the this dialogue that, that happens between Jesus and this woman. And, and we, we understand that she did know the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, just by the question she asked, Jesus knew she had a basic understanding. Right? She did knew that the, the, the Samaritans would be saved through the Messiah. Right? And yet Jesus takes it even further and is saying, hey, guess what? It's not going to happen then. It's happening now. And and again, the lesson that we learn, right, from from her and from Jesus is that all Scripture is linked together. Right? That that this plan has been set in motion by God through through all of creation. And and now, again, it it culminates in these these claims of Jesus. And yet, how he is now literally starting to transition into a public ministry where he's literally changing people's lives in front of them. Right? And yet we, we know this concept has been taught to us, but, but again, it, it comes alive even in this story as we understand these assumptions that, that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives because it corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. Again, this, once again, is a very familiar, popular verse, but yet when we put it in the context of this lesson that Jesus teaches this woman and all of us, right, it suddenly means something a lot more than we thought. We need to read and to study and to learn from all of Scripture, not just our favorite stories and passages, and we need to see how it all links together. And then we move on, though, to assumption number three, and, and, and that is who benefited from this story. Because, again, John kind of makes this assumption that, like, that we know some of the backstory, we know the people involved, and, and yet here we see Jesus continue with this, this struggle of using the physical world to teach, teach deep spiritual truths. 
right? We see how this woman struggled with this at first, but yet the more she interacted with Jesus, she got it, right? It made sense to her, so much so that she went to the village and brought all these other hundreds, potentially thousands of other people back to Jesus, and all of their lives were changed because she got it. But yet we also see, though, not just this woman and all of this Samaritan village that, that benefited from this story, we also see how the disciples struggled to get it. Again, the, the, the disciples show back up in, in this, you know, and, and again, they're, they're struggling with the, the physical side of Jesus, and Jesus, you need to eat, and he's uh, giving this, and then they, they end up getting this, this stern lecture from Jesus, right, about planting and harvesting and, and all these kinds of things. And, and again, we, we see again, he was once again trying to use the physical world to teach deep spiritual truths. And then he spends the next two days in the Samaritan village, literally harvesting souls. I mean, doing exactly what he told the disciples to do. As he led them by example. Again, we see in verses 40 and 41, he says, when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. And so he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Again, he, he, he tells the disciples, hey, remember, what did he tell them at the beginning? He called. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Right? And now he literally shows them what he means to the Samaritans. Right? Jesus doesn't just talk the talk. Right? Jesus follows through and leads them by example. And, and which leads us, though, that, again, the lesson that we need to learn, that, that, that the Samaritans learned, right? that the disciples continue to learn, and that we need to continue to learn, is that integrity really matters. We can't just say it. We have to do it. And yet, as we see Jesus leading by example, again, and we see again the humanity side of Jesus, that Jesus was human, he understands what it's like to be human, and that struggle, and yet he still was a person of integrity. He still led by example. He still did everything he asked us to do. Because integrity really matters. And, and yet, unfortunately, the pretty widespread reputation of the church today is not that we are people of integrity, but yet we are a bunch of hypocrites. We need to do our part to change that perception. Right? And live out our faith, right? And do what Jesus tells us to do. Okay? And then we move on to this, this last story that wraps up this chapter in, in verses 43 through 54. And, and that's where, again, Jesus then finally moves on from Samaria and he ends up going back to Galilee. Okay, but yet, before he does this, 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 this official shows up. He, he travels from Galilee and he comes to find Jesus there. Right? Because, again, Jesus' public reputation is starting to spread and they realize these things that he's doing and, and the miracles and what he's really capable of. And this guy shows up. We don't have time to read the story. I encourage you to do it yourself this week. Okay, to go, but literally he shows up, and, and, and this guy makes an assumption about Jesus. Right? He, he comes to Jesus and says, hey, I need you to come in to heal my son. Like, he's here in, in Galilee. Come with me. Right? His assumption is that Jesus needs to physically be there to heal him. And then Jesus tells him, he's like, hey, you know what? I, I can do you one better. Right? Your son is going to live. And he says, so go, just go on home. Right, and Jesus goes off on, on, his, on his other journey. And, and again, then this guy, he, he gets met on the way back, right? And, and by his servant comes to find him because he's looking for this official and said, hey, you don't have to find Jesus. Your, your son is healed. Like, he's fine. 
And he comes back, and, and when he gets that news, he says, hey, tell me when did he get better? And, and he puts the timeline together and realizes it was the very moment that Jesus spoke, right, that his son was healed. And here Jesus ramps up not only his public perception, right, and not only does, does he, he, his reputation start to spread even more, right, as now as he starts to welcome the spotlight, but he also ups the ante on what he's capable of doing and realizes that he doesn't even have to physically touch people to purify them. All he has to do is speak it. And then we, though we see, though, then at the end of this, right, that, that Paul te- or John tells us in verse 54 that this was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee. And which leads us to our last assumption, and that is that John assumes that we understand why he bookends these three chapters with the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Galilee. Again, what, what do I mean by that? He bookends it, chapters 2, 3, and 4. Okay, we, we, how do we start chapter 2? We start chapter 2 with water into wine and the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And then we end chapter 4 with the healing of the official son in Galilee. Okay, this was the second miraculous sign, okay, which, which links us back to this original miracle. And, and again, this, he's showing us this transition that Jesus goes through from this no-name carpenter right, to public figure. Right? And John is telling us that, that this, this change of role for Jesus, this, this season, this transition time for Jesus is now complete. He is no longer just this no-name carpenter in Nazareth. He is now, he is a public figure, a rabbi that is stirring up all kinds of questions. Right? And he's no longer throwing the spotlight off, and now he's saying, come, right? and I will show you, and I will teach you. Notice, because Jesus doesn't protest at any point in chapter 4 to keep the attention off of him. In fact, he, he banks on it, right, on the fact that the Samaritan woman is going to go and share what he's done, right, that this official is going to go back and share it. He, he is now becoming the public figure. Again, we see this progression from the wedding to here. First, Jesus is only known by his close friends and family, and his, then his disciples, and now he is a public figure. Right? And in the midst of this, Jesus makes this statement in verse 44, when he says, he himself said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Again, what was Jesus teaching them and teaching us? He was letting us know that it is hard for other people to make the shift as your influence and your authority grow. Again, this is not an excuse, but this is an explanation. Right, of Jesus saying, like, hey, I've shifted seasons in my life and in my ministry, and not everybody's going to be okay with that. Again, our faith starts out very personal. Right? And then it expands as it grows to influence and administer to more and more people as we journey forward and become more like Christ. At least it's supposed to. Right? We're supposed to grow. We're supposed to change. We're supposed to have different seasons and phases of our faith journey, right? Which is our final lesson that needs to be learned from these stories, that there are seasons and phases of your faith journey. And to say, are you in a new season? Are you in a new phase? When's the last time you transitioned in your faith to a new place? If you can't remember, then I would challenge you to say your faith isn't growing. And it needs to. 
right? And just the way that Jesus transitioned, right, so should we. Again, John uses these three chapters to summarize Jesus' initial training of his disciples. And they now graduate from Jesus' boot camp. And now Jesus raises the bar on them and on the expectation of what they're supposed to do. And we're going to see next week as we get into chapter 5 that Jesus starts really poking the beehive of the Pharisees as he fully engages into his public ministry. And he challenges the disciples to, to have just been watching Jesus up to this point. And now he challenges them to step up and to start contributing. And that, that's a big part of our vision of Oregon Trail, right? That we start out consuming and we move towards contributing. Okay, that, that's a natural phase and growth of our faith journey. And I would tell you, um, as I've looked at this church, right, in the last five years that I've been here, and it, you know, if you haven't been keeping track, I'll let you know, in July, I will complete five years as your pastor at Oregon Trail. And in those five years, I've seen and watched our church go through all kinds of phases and, and different seasons of our growth. And I believe right now that as a church that we need to move into a new phase. These last year and a half or so, we have been in this phase of building projects and structure changes and strengthening the foundation of our church so that we can support the next phase of growth. And over these last five years, I've watched this as a church as we've gone between phases of growth and outreach and in times where we've had to work on our structure and be ready to sustain what God's bringing us. Right now is the time for us as a church, as a congregation, to transition into another phase of outreach and community engagement. Again, this pandemic has truly aided us with this transition. Right Through our tech upgrades and, again, moving to a, more of a true online presence with our streaming and everything that's come through this. Um, also, we see the state of people in our world. Right, this pandemic and, and everything that's happening here has eliminated the gray area of life. Right, we are more divided now than we've ever been in every area of life and faith. Right, those that were on the fence about their faith, again, they had an excuse to not come and they, they're not back. Right, but also those, again, that were on the fence, we've seen many even within our own church right, that, have, that have taken their faith a lot more seriously throughout this pandemic. Right, so it, with that said is that, again, there is no more lukewarm. There's no middle to anything. We are more divided now than ever. But yet that doesn't have to be a discouragement because that means that those of us that are here that are committed to Jesus are more serious about our faith than we've ever been. And it also clearly more defines the mission that we're on and the target of that mission. Right, That people need Jesus more today than ever. This has brought on an incredible opportunity for the gospel to spread. But we need to carry God's light into this dark world. Again, we need to, to deliver the living water to those that are dying. And we don't have to look very far to find that. Through God's spirit, living in the heart of every believer, we as the church have the power to change this world. And we as Oregon Trail have the power to change this community. Again, not by our power, but by God's power. Right? To follow the example set by Jesus. Because he had to go to Samaria. Right? And we have to go to our friends and our neighbors and our family and our community. Right? Because they need 
Jesus. And our faith needs to transition to a new phase of grace. Which brings me this morning not to a final thought, it is a final challenge this morning. Because I don't know about you, but I feel challenged by this. Right? And the final challenge this morning is what phase of training is Jesus on with you? Are you ready to move on or are you still learning the same lessons over and over again? Again, is your faith stuck learning the same things over and over again or will you get it and be ready to move on? Because God needs you to move on. God needs you to keep growing. Again, I don't know where your faith is. I don't know. Maybe the step you need to take is just by receiving him as your savior for the first time. Maybe it's rededicating your life and say, God, I've, I've canted my faith too long. I'm ready to journey forward. Hey, maybe literally it's just a phase of, of celebrating what God has done, right? And continue to, to, to work with God every day as you take his love and his light into this world. I don't know where your faith is, but I hope that you know where it is. And I also hope that you know where it's going. And that you're going to transition into a new phase with us as a church as we transition into this new phase. Lord God, that is our prayer. Lord, that you would give us all of you. God, give us your spirit. Lord, empower us, Lord, with your presence. Lord, that we can deliver that living water, Lord, to those that so desperately need it. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would be consumed, Lord, and filled with your living water. Lord, that our faith would be a growing faith. God, that that we could see those phases of growth that you, you bring to our own lives. God, and that we can invite others to come along with us on that journey. Lord, give us the courage this week, Lord, to to live out our own faith, God, and and to have those conversations, those those invitations, God, those those things that, that we know you need us to do. Lord, we have to carry your light and deliver your living water. Lord, guide us this week as we do exactly that. We love you. We praise you. Guide us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.